welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts here with you today, and we have an interview with Scott Dicker. Scott was a co-founding member of The Onion. Y'all know The Onion, the newspaper? Did you know it was a newspaper? I know it's online now, but if you're growing up and going to college in the 80s, 90s, uh, you picked up that newspaper on campus. You read these crazy, funny articles, eye-catching headlines always, uh, sometimes irreverent, sometimes pushing the envelope, but always funny. And today I get to talk to Scott Dickers about what it was like there at the very beginning, how they went about putting together an issue each week, what the process was like. Um, how he handled people who wanted to write for The Onion. As you can imagine, once it became successful, everybody in the world who thought they were funny were knocking on The Onion's door and sending them articles, and that was the case. He talks about how they handled that early on, what they looked for in a writer, and also what he thought a lot of those writers should be doing instead of trying to write for The Onion. A very interesting take on that as well. Talk about his early influences, what got him into it. We talk about some of the things that are going on now that are a result of Things like National Lampoon, things like The Onion, like Babylon B. I don't know if you pick up any of those uh, articles in your social, but kind of a Christian-niched version of The Onion. We talk about all the different niches that he's heard about and seen over the years and what that was like, uh, just kind of, you know, whether it was a compliment, inspiring, or whatnot. We talk about some things that almost happened for The Onion. Uh, he always tried to scale the paper and its influence, and some things fired off, some things didn't. We talk about all that. And then we also talk about how a beginner can approach comedy, as Scott teaches online classes and does mentoring as well. And while we're on the topic of mentoring, just for a second, I don't know if I mentioned this much on the podcast, probably should mention it more, but I'm available to do coaching calls with you. A lot of folks have been taking advantage of that this year since they've had some downtime where they're not traveling. And guess what? I've had some time here to take the calls where normally I couldn't. What we do is we hop on Zoom. We go through your material, your content. We punch it up. We uh, tackle your taglines, make a few more taglines usually for each joke. We strip down the setup so you can get to the joke quicker, which gives you more stage time to be funny and helps you not rush the setups because you're trying to get through them to the punchline. Uh, we just make the setup something that's vital, interesting, and direct. We do all those things as well as talk about your delivery, whatever else is on your mind, comedy, uh, business, you name it. It's your hour. You can get into that by just shooting me an email, schooloflaughs at gmail.com, and I'll shoot you back a link with a calendar. You pick out the time you want to do it. I send you back a Zoom link, and we're good to go. So all that's available to you. Don't want to drag on too much about it, but also thought I hadn't mentioned it really, and it's been fun for me, and I know you get a lot out of it. If you don't, your money back. Boom. There you go. I would like to take just a second to recognize our Patreon sponsor for this episode is Edward Rubin. Edward, thank you very much for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks for being part of Club 52, which is that weekly email group. Gets an email in your inbox every single week with a specific actionable tip on helping you get bigger, better, and more bookable. So thanks, Edward, for sponsoring the podcast and being part of Club 52. All right, enough of me blabbing. Let's get into it with Scott Dickers. <laughs> Well, I'm on the call today with Scott Dickers. How's it going, Scott? I'm great. How are you, Rick? 
Doing well. I know you're kind of busy doing some things, so thank you for taking time to join us today on the School of Last podcast. You've done a lot. You know, there's a lot I could ask you. There's a lot you've probably already been asking. I've, I've heard you on other podcasts. I'm going to try not to repeat too many things and link to those podcasts for my listeners. But, you know, just going back, we're close to the same age. I'm 52. I think you're 55 or so. Is that right? That is correct. So we kind of grew up in the same environments. And I don't know about you, but even by fourth or fifth grade, Totally started tuning into comedy, Cracked Magazine, Mad Magazine, those types of things. What was some of your early influences and stuff that grabbed your attention early on? Yeah, same. So I think TV was a big influence on me. I watched Sesame Street, and I didn't like Mr. Rogers. I didn't like Romper Room. I don't know if you ever saw oh, Romper yeah. Room. If that was a national show, I don't even know. You know, Was that a local show? I have no idea. And... Gilligan's Island was had a big impact on me. I Dream of Jeannie. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched some of those things. But yeah, Sesame Street was big, I think. And then my mom taught me how to read before kindergarten. And I got into uh, joke books and like Dr. Seuss, you know. And this is some great, great humor. Like Dr. Seuss is a master humor writer uh, with wordplay. I mean, there's nobody better. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into the age you're talking about, third, fourth grade, I mean, I had been interested in it for a long time. And that's when I discovered Mad Magazine. And that was kind of mind blowing to me that they were parodying current movies and current TV shows and nothing was sacred to them. They made fun of everything. And I came from a very... Uh, sanctimonious type of home, very religious family, and there wasn't a lot of humor. Things were very serious. And so Mad Magazine was like a a window to another world for me. And it's funny you mentioned Cracked because I know that now Cracked has far eclipsed Mad online. But in my day, Cracked was the the poor man's alternative to Mad. Right. And my friend Marcellus Hall and I went to school together would always make fun of cracked magazine and compare it to mad and we were like brand loyal loyalists yeah we had had picked our brand and through mad i got more into like adult pop culture and as i grew up i started seeing things like steve martin george carlin saturday night live stuff like that so that's that was sort of the kind comedy institutions that I liked, uh, but I don't know how much they influenced me because I, well, I, I think there was a lot of negative influence. Like I read Steve Martin's book, Cruel Shoes, mm-hmm. and I didn't think it was funny at all. Like I really liked his comedy albums and his guest stints on talk shows and SNL. He was such a master, but the book was a real letdown. And I was like, well, I could, I could write something better than this. Cause I was like writing little stories on my own, like copying mad and Dr. Seuss and stuff like that. And nothing lights a fire under me. Nothing inspires me more than when I see something that's not good. It yeah. just makes me want to do better. It makes me feel like, well, I can do this. And it, it really empowers me. And so I have Steve Martin to thank for that. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, I, I same age, grew up, and when I saw King Tut, you know, I think I'd heard it on the radio a little bit before I saw it on Saturday Night Live, if I remember right. And I was just like, 
I didn't know adults could just goof around, you know, because I, yeah, I was uh, definitely into reading stuff. And like you say, crack to me was like a parody of Mad Magazine. It was, it was the knockoff. So it was like a level down, even though those, you know, those guys. And then it dawned on me later on that these adults were creating these magazines with the mindset of like a fourth grader. Like it was entertaining to me. And that always kind of made me a little bit hopeful that my comedic senses, I guess, as a young kid would be relevant as I got older. If And that's really the difference between the people on stage and the people in the audience is the people on stage still give themselves the green light to be a goofball. And the people in the audience are like, I'm too grown up for that, you know? Yeah. And I think they live vicariously through that because everybody wants to be a goofball, but we've had it drilled into us that we have to be buttoned up and that's all child, childish foolishness. And um, it's why a lot of people who want to be creative are blocked because they have this messaging pounded into them for so many years that you don't be silly. Don't, you know, be responsible, be a grown up. Um, and it's, it's so fun to just be stupid and silly. Like with my friends and I, when we do comedy, uh, one of the highest compliments we can pay to a, a bit or a joke or whatever is, Oh my God, that's so stupid. Right. Like it's just so dumb that you can't help but laugh at it. Right. I love that. It's like Will Ferrell has the same style of humor. I think he and Adam McKay probably do the same thing when they're coming up with certain jokes that are just so dumb that they can't stop laughing. Yeah, Ferrell especially, just the, is the constant child and everything, you know, man boy or whatever you want to call it. And he's he's always he's always I like his his ability to be amazed at the simplest of things, you know, then focus on the minutia and turn that into the big thing in the in the sketch or the story. Yeah, that uh, grown up child character archetype. Uh, mm-hmm. that he plays is very popular. He he almost always plays, even when he's playing other archetypes, like with Ron Burgundy, the he's the bumbling authority archetype. He's also the grown-up child. Like, you, he can't escape mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and that gives you a lot of uh, leeway, too, as a character in any sketch. If you're the character that doesn't know anything, you could almost blow the whole sketch and still make sense because you're the guy who didn't know you were blowing the sketch, you know? <laughs> It's a it's a great little out. Uh, along those same lines, you know, uh, like w- when you were at the Onion and you had, I'm sure, I can't even imagine how many people were trying to to write for the Onion and and submitting things and popping in. Uh, you know, there's a beauty to having raw talent and not knowing the rules and and just being, you know, a writer who writes something that's that stupid because you didn't know that the rules said you couldn't write things like that. What kind of approach did you guys have with uh, new writers and and harnessing that new energy they have and the rawness, but also guiding them towards, well, here's what really works for the onion and here's how you can make it more of our style? It was very much a sink or swim environment. And early on, I would take anybody, anybody who came in and showed some eagerness to do it. Like that was the commodity. The commodity wasn't the writing talent, because I think a lot of people have the writing talent. The commodity is who's willing to step forward and say, I will try it. I will do it. And of course, on the flip side, there's plenty of people who have that confidence to step up and try it who are terrible and they're (laughs) never going to get anywhere. There's a lot of those. (laughs) A lot of those. But I would try anybody and people would just drop by. They'd drop in the office or they'd know somebody who knew somebody and they'd submit something. And if it was funny, I'd, I'd try it. I'd run it. And if, if they seemed funny, I'd invite them to be a part of our writer meeting. And over the years, those first few years, we just collected a group of really 
perfectly suited people in Madison, Wisconsin to write The Onion, people who were silly and funny. And, you know, beyond that, they were also all sort of tortured and bitter and had <laughs> were dropouts and had minimum wage jobs. And they loved having the soapbox and they had so much to say and they were smart. Like so many of them were like genius level IQ people but who, for whatever reason, just society had kicked out. You know, they were like, well, you know, college didn't work out for them. The nine to five didn't work out for them. They're never going to wear a suit, but they're brilliant and they're decent. They're, they're humanitarians, you know, so they're natural born satirists. And if people wrote things that were funny, they would stay on and we'd keep them on. And if, they stopped writing things that were funny, they, they would drift away, you know, and it was mm -hmm. a pretty natural thing, sort of maybe like putting together a, a band, though probably even less formal, because it was just like the slow evolution. And then after The Onion got big and we started getting tons of submissions and we had to come up with systems where we would tell people we don't read submissions because if we, if we accidentally ran something that was similar to a submission, they could sue us if they didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement or whatever, so, or a uh, release. Mm -hmm. And, and now it's just absurd how, how many people want to write for the onion, just, you know, the hundreds of wannabe writers. And that kind of surprises me. Like when I was starting out, the big humor magazine was spy magazine. And oh, it yeah. was, the greatest humor magazine America had produced up to that point. And I loved it. I was so impressed with it. But I never would have written some stuff for Spy and sent it to them hoping to get a job from them. Like, I don't understand that mindset. My thinking was, I can do that. Like, I could start my own humor publication. Why can't I do that? And I don't understand why all these people submitting to The Onion don't just start their own publication. And many of them have. So there are thousands of onion knockoffs. And that's not what I mean. Like when I um, was looking at spy magazine and starting up a humor publication, I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be something that nobody had ever seen before because that's what gets attention in the, in the marketplace of ideas. So the people who break out now in comedy are not the people who are doing the garlic, which is like a news parody. Right humor publication. It's people who are doing things like uh, Connor O'Malley doing his crazy man videos or Sean Chedjirachi who, who did his hilarious and wonderful Liar Town USA website and people like that, you know, um, Sarah Cooper doing her Trump videos. Mm. Nobody was doing that, you know, so they go, they, um, they break through and they do something different. So that's kind of the, for me, the evolution of people wanting to submit to the onion. <laughs> At first, yeah. I think it was great ground floor. Yeah. Come on in, try it out. You can be a part of this. But once it's an institution, like do your own thing, you know? Right. And there's been a lot, you know, seemingly recently, you know, the Babylon B is, seems like it's got a little bit of traction going on. They're one of the big ones. Yeah. And uh, that's something that, you know, the onion when it started, it was unique, but it was universal. You know, everybody was familiar with news, and you're turning that on its head, first in print and then audio, video. But now the Babylon Bee is it's kind of niched down, you know, targeting more the Christian reader. 
did you ever anticipate seeing the parody format of of, of the Onion and, and news niching down that that deeply? Like it's you don't have any. There might be an economist version of the Onion, or a there probably is. There's a dentist version. There's a punk rock <laughs> with the hard times. There's a military one with the duffel blog. There's all kinds. I never did foresee that. No, that's um, fascinating yeah, that people are doing that. That's pretty interesting. Yes. Yeah, I like that, although I can see the challenges in marketing that. Although, you know, there's an argument on both sides. The The deeper you get into the niche, the easier it is because you know who your people are and you're not trying to please everybody, but you're limiting the overall number of people. So it, it can flip either way. There um, are arguments for both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you started with the Onion, I mean, you were there from the very beginning, um, and there for quite a while. You, and we'll get into the transition from print to to audio and video and website stuff in a second. But you know, early on, it's fun and games. You know, it's it's we're writing, we're doing stuff creative, and then when it starts to turn into a business, you know, you have the grind coming in. And a couple of questions I have about that, just from being an independent business guy myself, like you are. You know, how how do you delegate the stuff that is not fun? How do you find the people to give those things to? I mean, obviously, you had to find a legal department at some point early on because I'm sure uh, people are pressuring you saying, you know, this is defamation and, and they didn't understand the, the difference. So I guess three questions. I'll tell you that story first. So yeah. we definitely got threatened with lawsuits early for making fun of people because nobody knew what The Onion was. They just assumed that it was another newspaper. So if they saw themselves being viciously uh, lampooned, they would just get really upset and they would send angry letters from their lawyers. And one day a lawyer showed up at our office and threatened to sue us out of business because we had run a photo of a celebrity without her permission. And he uh, rifled through our back issues to find the photo. He represented that celebrity. He lived in Madison, Wisconsin, but he represented Ginger Rogers. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And he was a, is still around, wonderful character by the name of Ken Artis, attorney at law. And he couldn't find the photo. And I was pretty sure we had put it in like an ad for a hamburger joint that we had made, which you can't do. You cannot put a celebrity's picture in an ad because that implies endorsement. And um, you're, you lose mm -hmm. that case in court. But he couldn't find it. And he felt so bad. And he, he turned out he was a huge fan of The Onion. Out of guilt, he volunteered to be The Onion's pro bono legal counsel hmm. for the next several years. And The Onion would not exist without Ken Artis. He deflected so many lawsuits from big companies. He was a masterful attorney who just knew how to deflect these people. And he would also go after people like radio stations would often steal our radio show or our comedy CD and they'd play it and pretend it was their own, or they'd read our jokes on the air without giving us credit. And he would go after them <laughs> and get settlements out of them. So he was our legal department. <laughs> he did great. Uh, but yeah, as far as like growing and delegating and like ha having something fun turn into a business. So I had been doing comedy my whole life and I had made radio plays and I'd written stories. I'd made movies. I, you name it, cartoons. And I actually started uh, doing voice work for commercials professionally 
before The Onion. And then I started drawing a daily comic strip for The Onion. And that's how I made my living when The Onion was starting up. And so that was my life, like doing comedy and being obsessed with it and doing it all the time was what I loved doing. So when it turned into a business and we had advertising contracts and we had to deliver content to put out the newspaper every week, I, uh, that was nothing new to me, like those deadlines and like working till three in the morning. I'd been doing that my whole life. Like my friend and I in college, we did a comedy radio show. It was a really lavishly produced radio drama type comedy series. And we spent all summer on it. And we, we'd stay up till three, four in the morning at the radio station working on it. We just loved it. And I remember one time going outside you know, radio stations are kept pretty cold because of the, all the equipment. And I wore like long sleeve shirt and long pants. And I went outside at one point and it was so hot. And I was like, oh my God, it's summer. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it was just in all the time. So that's what The Onion became. And, and uh, I never went out, never went to parties, never did anything, just was at The Onion office all the time. And, you know, the, the fun stuff fell to me, you know, the coming up with the jokes, editing the stories making the graphics. And then eventually you find people who are of like mind that you can delegate to. One of uh, the people who was in our circle of writers and creators uh, was a guy named Mike Lowe, who wanted the job of graphics editor, somebody who could do all the pictures and drawings and everything. And that, that would have taken such a huge load off of me. And I interviewed him and, and he told me the story of when he was a kid, he painted his little green soldiers those little soldier characters. Oh, yeah. And he painted them with such detail that he painted the whites of their eyes, and then he painted a black pupil in the middle of their eye, and then a little white dot in the black pupil. I said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> so he, was, he became our Photoshop guru, mm. you know, doing all those Photoshop alterations. And, you know, stuff like, stuff like that happens where you find the right person. Yeah, it was a very smooth transition for me from hobby to business. Walk us through what it'd be like for uh, you know getting articles, headlines, things together for a new issue. Was there a, a meeting at the beginning of the week and published at the end, or what was that process like? Yeah, it was a very regimented system that was based on everything I knew about how comedy is created on TV shows and sitcoms and everything else. And I wanted to do it completely differently because I didn't think that way worked, and I didn't think that way led to the funniest material. Typically how it would go would be the head writer creator would have a, an idea and he would brainstorm it with the other people and then they would write it up. There's this famous story of uh, a meeting of writers at your show of shows where Neil Simon would type while Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar and some of the others would like, you know, improv. And by the end of their meeting, he'd have some scripts because they would just have been goofing around. And that doesn't work. Like, unless you have Carl Reiner and Woody wow. Allen and <laughs> Neil Simon in a room, you're not going to do that. So uh, I, wanted the, I wanted to eliminate the personalities from the equation because I knew that was the problem. When you have a head writer like me, I was like the head creative guy if I'm the boss and I'm coming up with an idea, I don't want a bunch of people saying yes, sir, and running my idea when it's not funny. So all the names were stripped from the jokes and everybody would submit jokes blindly. 
And then we'd read through all those jokes. And when I say jokes, I mean headline ideas. Or in the early days, they were ideas for concepts that we could pursue in the, in the Onion. And so we'd all read them. And the ones that would get the best response, no matter where they came from, might have been my idea, they might have been the janitor's idea. Uh, those would go on the short list. And then we would assign writers to write those up. We'd assign graphics and we'd put it together and put out the paper. And that's the short version. But it was about a week or two lead time for a story. So we never did anything topical. We were just doing current events based made up news. Mm -hmm. So we could do a joke about gun control or, you know, the sitting president or abortion or stuff, stuff like that. And it would seem topical, but it was really when it hit the streets, we'd been working on it for two weeks. Gotcha. And that changed in 2012 when we decided, you know what? We should respond to current events and do jokes about things that are happening in the news because that's what everybody thinks we do anyway. And, um, but yeah, we just did what we did on the newspaper and we just put it on a website for 12 years. How much is that? 22 years we did that? Hmm. Uh, no, 20, a little less than 20 years. And um, in 2012, we hired Baratunde Thurston, who's a great digital uh, marketer. Um, influencer who wrote a great book called how to be black and he was like you guys should be on twitter and uh you guys should like uh promote your stuff on social media and we were like okay i guess right. and you guys should post a new story every day instead of like dumping all the stories and on on sunday night or whatever and he had all these ideas so we transitioned from being a print uh, organization to a, an online organization around that time. And then it wasn't long after that. It was like, I think two or three years later where the print was, was dead. Mm -hmm. uh, we realized there's, there's no advertising support for it and we can't justify it anymore. When, when you transitioned online, it's, it appears to me everything that worked in print worked online, but were there any small tweaks you had to make? Um, I know at some point you guys went through the uh, click hole process where you're kind of parroting clickbait. Was there more of that kind of way of writing a headline? Because it seemed like before it was already pretty clickable when it was in print. Yeah, there, the only adjustment was we discovered this thing called Drupal editing, where once you put the website up, you can enter a, a password and go in and change the story, like edit it. In the old days, when you put the paper to bed, there was no changing it. It was in print, it was out there, and that was a curse because too many writers got the password and they were going in and like tweaking their stories for days after. Uh, and suddenly, after a, a time, I said, okay, no more password, no more. <laughs> right. Once we put it out, it's out. We're done with that. It was taking over people's lives. That was the only adjustment. Hmm. Interesting. And, um, you know, monetizing it online. I know when it was in print, it was just coupons for the local campus pretty much, right, at the bottom? Yeah, at first. And then over time, we started to get more national print ads and bigger, you know, regional print ads and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so the whole advertising team had to make the biggest transition probably because now they, they have this digital ad agency at The Onion and they're selling they sell like a whole campaign where it's like, it's like an identity campaign where that company is associated with the onion and maybe they fund a certain video or something like that. And then it becomes a whole thing. Yeah. 
if I remember right, I think it was the Dana Carvey show had a segment or or two from, I want to say it was Stephen Colbert that was delivering the content, but was The Onion involved with that? Am I thinking right? Yeah. Yeah. So Robert Smigel was the head writer and he reached out to us about having an Onion news segment on that show. And Stephen Colbert read stories from The Onion, like a, a news show. And it was, you know, kind of like how we would have done it where he played it straight as a news anchor and very similar to how he did the Colbert show, which was co-created by and run by Ben Carlin, who used to be the editor of the onion. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And then their first show went so horribly and the the show tanked. They never actually put that segment on on the show, but uh, it was a thrill to be involved in that show. I'd imagine that a lot of different opportunities popped up and some we might not even know about, but were, were there any other things that, that jumped out as you as like, oh man, this could be the next big thing. And it, then it just kind of fizzles out. Any other things come to mind? We had so many projects. Like I was always trying to increase the onions reach, you know? So I was always doing, was doing a radio show, was doing radio comedy CDs, was doing TV pilots. We started doing web video as soon as we could. We made a movie and that was a disaster. Anyway, that's a whole (laughs) other thing. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so a lot of that stuff, there was a a TV special we were going to do. So back in the 90s, they used to do comedy TV specials. Spy Magazine had two in the late 80s that were hosted by Jerry Seinfeld that were really good. And we had a deal with NBC to do a uh, special at the end of the century uh, for, it was called Our Dumb Century. It was based mm-hmm. on our book, our first book, which would have been amazing. Chris Rock was going to host it. Uh, uh, that never happened. So that would have been amazing. And then in the 90s, we never did anything with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, but they reached out to us when they were shooting Mr. Show and they invited us out to you know, meet them and just like watch the show. And I got to go see a taping of the Larry Sanders show because Bob Odenkirk was on it. So it was really fun to be in that orbit. Yeah. Those are all shows that I like a lot. Uh, Larry Sanders show. I couldn't get enough of Gary Shanley, man, you know, kind of a precursor to 30 rock as far as seeing the behind the scenes of how the show works a little bit. You know, you teach workshops, classes. What are some of the first things you do to try to get them freed up a little bit to give them the green light to, to be silly again, whether it's a writing exercise or anything else. Yeah, well, that's it. You hit the nail on the head. Um, I've been thinking about this more and more lately, that the people who are out there producing great comedy are not necessarily the funniest people. They are, uh, when I say that, I mean, they're not necessarily the funniest people among the entire population. What they are is the funniest people among the very smaller subset of the population of people who have the confidence to go put themselves out there. Because I can't tell you how many times I met people when The Onion was starting up who I thought were really funny, and I invited to come and write for The Onion. I would say, hey, you should come you know, sit in on our meeting and write. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, I could never do that. Because it's such a slow, gradual process of starting to do something new and learning a new skill, which writing comedy is. It, it can be tricky for people to get started and see any progress because most people are terrible at it when they, when they start any new skill and comedy writing is no different. So I teach them to embrace how terrible their work is. Like don't care. Don't worry about the quality. Just put it out. 
So I get them doing this exercise called the morning pages exercise where they're supposed to write for half an hour every day without thinking about it, without judging it, just pouring their thoughts out for half an hour. Stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that usually greases the wheels and opens up people's childlike nature that has been long suppressed, which you need. You need to unlock that if you're ever going to be a creative person. Yeah, the process, if they don't enjoy that, uh, it's it's hopeless. You know, that's what I try to find with my students is little exercises where they don't have to worry about the result. You know, don't worry about the punchline at all. If you write long enough, every sentence you write is a potential setup. So just get as many thoughts down on paper. We can look through those and find stuff that's interesting and unique. And, and you know, as a teacher, if, they've, if they do five or ten written things for you, you can already start to see where they're kind of where their comedy voice is naturally, whereas sometimes we have years and years before we see that in ourselves, but you can easily see it in a different person's writing and say, Hey, well, this is who you are. You're, you're slightly angry, but you've got, you know, this curiosity about your anger or whatever. And they're like, Oh yeah, I guess that's what I am. And then the writing really excels and, and accelerates. They can pick up, run with it, you know, but it's, it's that process. If they don't enjoy setting aside at 30 minutes a day, or if they don't enjoy, you know, doing the work, it's, it's, going to be a grind with any skill like if you don't love it you'll never succeed at it because you need that love to propel you through those early years when you'll suck Mm -hmm. and so i i had my entire childhood of being terrible at comedy and i was lucky to get those out of the way so by the time i hit the road at 18 19 20 i was pretty good at it you know and so i was able to start doing a comic strip and i was able to do the onion pretty decently, but obviously then you start competing on a more professional level. You learn and grow even more, but yeah, that love of doing it, that passion is kind of like the rocket fuel that it takes to break the earth's orbit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once you've broken orbit, i.e. once you've actually established yourself as someone who does comedy and people know you do comedy, then it's kind of smooth sailing. Then it's just like, Oh, just have fun. So if they wanted to get involved with your uh, online class or any of the other stuff you offer, um, your website, scottdickers.com, probably has the links, but is there a, a different place you'd like to send them? Yeah, I think you can get to it through there, but the website where I teach comedy is called howtowritefunny.com, and I have a bunch of free eBooks there. My How to Write Funny podcast is there where I have interviews with comedians and comedy writers and producers and agents and people all throughout the comedy business talking about how they do what they do, some great wisdom in there. And then there's a courses page that has the Comedy Business School course, and people can um, uh, get in touch with me for private mentoring, which I do, which is a lot of fun. And I'm working on a new course now, which is the basic How to Write Funny course, which is the one that I taught at Second City for three or four years that has launched many a comedy career out of people who came in took it for eight weeks and um, uh, turned them into professional comedy writers in that time. Great. Well, I'll make sure I link to all that in the show notes. And I want to run this by you too, because I, I don't know the exact dates, but I used to do, you know, stand up on the road and would work in Madison all the time at funny business. And I opened up one time for Emo Phillips. And I remember just a huge amount of people from the onion came out to that show to see Emo work. Does that ring a bell? Were you in that group at all? I was probably at the office working, but I know that definitely one of the people who went to that show was Ben Carlin, who I mentioned earlier, who went on to be 
John Stewart's executive producer, showrunner, and co-created The Colbert Show. Because Ben's first job in comedy after The Onion was writing jokes for Emo Phillips. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, that just is a testament to the uniqueness that the people at The Onion have to you know, emo's not everybody's cup of tea, but I, I love the people who are in that cup. You know, he's got such a great, twisted, unique, uh, hard to predict style of comedy. Pretty wild. Uh, but his, you know, his jokes are, and when you write for a comedian like that, like that's such a great experience to write for their unique voice. Mm-hmm. Great yeah. experience. I learned a little bit that week for sure. Uh, you know, I was in charge of driving him back and front from the hotel back and forth. So I got a little personal time with him, but on the way to the, the gig, he's like, is there some place that sells milk in a, in a big uh, carton, kind of like the orange juice cartons? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure we can find that. So we stopped into a, you know, like a seven 11 or something. He came out this big gallon of milk and he poured it all out in the, in the parking lot <laughs> and he hopped in the car, get to the club and uh, in the green room, he's rinsing out the, the jug, fills it up with water dries it off, and then he writes all of his new jokes on the outside of that carton. And apparently he needed a gallon-sized carton to write his jokes on so that when he was taking a drink on stage, he could look at the joke title, and, and that would trigger what he had in his mind. So a water bottle wouldn't have done it. But <laughs> on the way there, he's like, I'm going to need a whole gallon jug. <laughs> uh, that's the trickiest thing about stand-up for me is remembering your next joke. I don't know how people do that. It's tricky. Uh, you got to put it somewhere where it makes logical sense to get into. And if it doesn't work, it makes logical sense that maybe you just got off track for a second and it doesn't distract from the show. But it's definitely the challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time today. Uh, learned a little bit. And I know that you've got some uh, some great stuff online. Like I said, you've got some free ebooks. You've got a podcast too, which I'll link to. So if people just want to kick the tires and hear your style of teaching or, or read the way you uh, instruct, there's plenty out there for them to do it. Thanks again for taking the time today. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Dickers. A lot of insight into what went down at The Onion early on and his uh, contributions to it on and off over the years quite a bit. Do take advantage of checking out his uh, free blogs, free ebooks on his website, howtowritefunny.com. Check him out, scottdickers.com. It's D-I-K-K-E-R-S to learn more about uh, him and what he has to offer. I would like to take a second just to read an iTunes review. This came in on May 12th. While the nation waits on a COVID vaccine, I found a cure for my comedy blues. All any angsty comics needs to do is ingest 215 episodes of Rick Stellar's show. He's kind, savvy, committed to the craft, and an ace through and through. Hey, thanks for that iTunes review. Hey, thanks for that iTunes review. Skibbiz. Uh, quarantine escape five stars. Love it. That's going to do it for this episode of the School of Laughs podcast. Feel free to reach out to me, schooloflaughs at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you want to learn more about those coaching calls. Thanks a lot. Stay safe and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.